And thank you, worship team, again, for all your work every week, in and out. We're grateful for that. Okay, here come some of the children. All right, the parade is coming by. There they go. Taryn, keep on rolling. Hey, I'm sorry. They learn quickly, don't they? Let me pray one more time. Lord, we thank you for these precious children that we just saw walking out the room. We pray that each one of them would come to know you in your timing as their Savior and their Lord. We pray that they would grow to be men and women of faith who serve you well. So, Lord, we ask that you'd help us as we work through this series in 1 Samuel. We ask that you would use it for good, we pray, that you would help our hearts to be open for what you would want us to learn and to know. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you've been with us in recent weeks, you know we've been doing a, serve, um, in a, doing a section in 1 Samuel, and we've made the point before that 1 Samuel is probably not the favorite passage for many people in the Bible, but it is a critical passage in God's Word. And if you've been with us in recent weeks, you know we've been talking the fact that God's people, the people of Israel, seem to be going down and down and down. Things were getting worse to the point where the guy who was in charge, the priest named Eli, he was not so much corrupt, but his sons were corrupt. And what we see now is we've sort of like hit bottom and things are starting to improve. And so where we're at in the series and what we saw last week is that we saw that there was a real a return, kind of a restoration. There was a turning back to the Lord. They had a victory in the battle at Mitzpah. They erected their Ebenezer, if you remember that. It was that stone of help what reminded them of God's faithfulness. And also they had a time where at least for a little while, there was peace in the land. But what we saw, if you remember last week when we were together, that here things were getting better, but there was still corruption going on. Samuel, who was that great prophet, his own sons were corrupt. And so people were still saying, you know, we still need a good king, a king who will do what, what God would want us to do. And so Samuel gave a warning. You better be careful about asking for a king. You've rejected your king, the Lord, but... If you want a king, you better be careful. And said the people rejected the Lord. They said they wanted a human king like everybody else. And so what we saw is that they were demanding to have a king. Saul, we know, was reluctant to do that. In fact, it was that strange thing. They were saying, this guy Saul, he's the guy we want. And they said, well, let's make him king. Where is he? Uh, he's hiding under the baskets. It's like, that's not a good way to start a king's role. And so things were a little bit weird, but they did finally have a king. And Samuel encouraged Saul to be the kind of king that God wanted him to be. And so where we're at this morning is we are picking up a section in 1 Samuel chapter 12. We're going to be looking at chapter 12 and chapter 13. We're going to skip 12. I mean, the next one, because not that it's not important. It is, but time space. But notice if you would. Here is a crisis. Sam, excuse me, Saul is relatively a young king. He hasn't had to face a lot of battles, but he does now. 
And what happens is a terrible thing that happens to him. It says, and from reading from 1 Samuel 12, Nahash, the Ammonite, king, the Ammonite, he came up and he laid seed to Jabesh Gilead, one of the cities right there, not far. All the men of Jabesh, of Jabesh said to him, make a treaty with us and we'll serve you. So the situation is, is that this is Nahash, he is one of the Ammonites, I mean, he's one from this group. And just to give you a picture here, if you notice on the screen up there, you can see where it says Ammon. You see? Oh, it's not first Samuel? Well, whatever it is, go to it. Uh, it should be the word that says Nahash on it. Does everybody have that? 11, 12. What's the difference? It's just numbers. So we're doing 11, skipping 12, and hitting 13, okay? But notice what happens here. The people at Jabesh Gilead realize they're in big trouble, okay? And so they're wondering, what are we going to do here? And so they say, listen, uh, what, what's going to happen here? Now notice Ammon, these are the Ammonites, these are people who lived on the east side of the Jordan River. And for example, even today, the capital of Jordan is Ammon. Same thing we're talking about here. But now we have this situation here where there's real struggle going on. Because here is what Nahash wants to do in terms of letting them have a treaty with him. Nahash the Ammonite replied, I'll make one with you, that is I'll make a treaty with you on one condition that I gouge out everyone's right eye and humiliate Israel. Like, are you kidding me? Like, no. Really. Like, the only way we're going to survive this is if you cut out, <coughs> scoop out our right eye? Yeah. And that's, by the way, that's not new. I mean, that happened years before, many times in these, different, in these ancient times. But if you notice it, it said, I'm going to cut, cut out, gouge out everyone's right eye. I mean, why the right one as opposed to the left one? For a very good reason. Soldiers, most people today, or still then, are right-handed. So most people who are soldiers, guys who are soldiers, they normally have on their left their shield. And they have their sword in their right hand to fight. And so if somebody takes out your eye as a soldier, you're pretty worthless. It's hard to fight. And you're a left-handed guy, and you can't see with your right eye. And so Nahash has said, sure, I'll make a treaty with you. And I'm going to okay, cut out everybody's right eye. What do you think of that? It's kind of like I'm going to diss you in a way that you'll remember it every time you look at the fact that you don't have an eye. And so in this ter terrible situation, verse 3, don't do anything to us. Okay, this is what they're asking, the people of Jabesh Gilead. Don't do anything to us for seven days, the elders of Jabesh said to him, and, and let us send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. If no one saves us, we'll, we'll surrender to you. Now, people say, now why, what king would even go for that kind of deal? Probably just say, no, in fact, we're going to do it today. Let's do it right now. But it probably is what's happening here is Nahash is so arrogant. It's like, I don't care if you have seven days because you're not going to be able to get anybody to fight against us. We are so powerful, you are so powerless, that we'll take you out just seven days after we do this. And they're like, oh my goodness, what do we do? And so they started asking for help. Verse 4, when the messengers came to Gibeah, that was Saul's hometown, and he told the terms to the people, they all wept aloud. Like, really? They're going to cut our eyes out? Like, yeah, they really are. That's verse 5, just then. And I love that, just then. This is one, again, of these things. That, isn't that amazing? Right at that moment, guess who showed up? Just then, Saul was coming from the field behind his oxen. Now, notice something, if you would, that's interesting. 
Here is the king of Israel. He's plowing. This gives you an idea of just how primitive really this is and how fragile it is. He doesn't have a big king, I mean a big place, a big place to be, to be his kingdom. He's plowing and he gets the word. And he said, hey, what's the matter with the people? Why are they weeping? Why? And so inquired and they repeated to him the words of the men of Jabesh. When Saul heard these words, it said the spirit of God suddenly took control of him and his anger burned furiously. And notice this, he took a team of oxen and he cut them in pieces and he sent them throughout the land of Israel by messengers who said, this is what will be done to the ox of anyone who doesn't march behind Saul and Samuel. In other words, you're coming and if you're not, you're in big trouble. We need every fighting man we can get. And so they're going, okay, we're coming. So notice what happens here in verse 8. Saul counted them at Bezek. There were about 300,000 Israelites, 30,000 men from Judah. He told the messengers who had come, listen, tell this man to the men of Jabesh Gilead, deliverance will come before yours tomorrow by the time the sun is set. So the messengers told the men of Jabesh, and they rejoiced. Then the maiden men of Jabesh said to Nahash, now they're doing a little trickery here. They're telling Nahash, who wants to cut their eyes out, and say, well, uh, tomorrow we will come out to you, and, and you can do whatever you want to us, but not today. Can we wait till tomorrow when you pluck out our eyes? Well, we can wait another day, I guess. Wasn't that nice of them? It's good to have nice kings like that who cut their eyes out and give them one day. Anyways, the next day, Saul organized the troop into three divisions, very common in the ancient world. Two going out, often another one in the middle. And so he said, okay, we're going to see about this. During the morning watch, this is very early in the morning, as the sun's just getting ready to come up, they invaded the Ammonite camp. This is Nahash's place. And they slaughtered them until the heat of the day. There were survivors but they were so scattered that not more than two of them were left together. Afterwards, the people said to Samuel, hey, who's the one who said that Samuel should not reign over us? Give us the names of those men so we can kill them. Remember there were people saying, this guy, the guy hiding behind the bushels and stuff? You want to, why don't we just kill them for saying those bad things about you, Saul? Here's where Saul really stood up in a good way. He was willing to lead the people into the army and to take the battle, but also he was graciousness enough to deal with the people who opposed him. That's a good thing about a leader, to say, I know you personally would not have voted for me to be king, but I am king. And he said, no, we're not going to kill these men because of what they said. This is a time of rejoicing because we've seen God at work. And so he said, today the Lord has provided deliverance. This word occurs two times just in this section. It's the verb yasha. It's the idea of to, 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 to deliver, to rescue, that idea of we're going to help those that are in trouble. And that's exactly what they're doing here. God is providing for his people. Now notice verse 14. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let's go to Gilgal so we can renew the kingship there. Now you remember Gilgal, Gilgal is a very important part in the ancient Israelite time. They crossed the river at a place called Gilgal when they came across the river into the promised land. And it was there that God had told them, take 12 stones, one for each tribe, and put them in the river as a reminder, sort of an Ebenezer of what God has done for you. And so this place that they talked about here, Gilgal, was one of their primary worship places. And so they're saying, okay, 
We're going to go to Gilgal, and we're going to make it official. Saul is officially our king. So there in the Lord's presence, they made Saul king. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings. These are ones that the priest got a part, the worshiper had a part, and they shared some with family and friends. Then they also had the other kinds of ones that were all totally burned off. And so they said, in the Lord's presence, and Saul and all the men of Israel greatly rejoiced. And so you see, here they are. Official, we are here. By the way, there's Gilgal down by Jericho, if you can kind of see on the map. Very close, right along the way there. And so what you see is you've got a situation where God enabled Saul to be the man he needed to be. In fact, I called this message, when Saul stood up, he stood up for what he needed to do. Now I want you to notice, if you would, verse back to verse 6. In verse 6, it was very interesting, it said, when Saul heard these words, the Spirit of God suddenly took control of him. And notice that phrase. It said, the Spirit of God took control of him, and his anger burned furiously. Now, why is this verse important? Well, it's important for one thing, for, for example, a lot of times when we as Christians talk about the working of the Holy Spirit, what are the things we think of? What are the things that the Holy Spirit does for us? Well, people would say, well, we think of the Holy Spirit as the comforter. That's a very one. We think of him as the one who is the counselor. He is the one that encourages us. All these very things, they're very positive and they're very true. But sometimes we forget that the Holy Spirit is not just there to comfort us. The Holy Spirit is there to do God's work, even though it be something that you don't want to do or you don't want to see to happen. For example, in this thing, it said when Saul heard these words, the Spirit of God suddenly took control of him, and it said, and his anger burned furiously. What's interesting here, you've got the Holy Spirit working not to make somebody feel good, but to empower a man to say, we're going to go after these people and we're going to beat them. It's to bring judgment upon the people. And sometimes we as Christians particularly have a very narrow view of the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's saying God's Spirit can work for a lot of different ways, both to encourage, but also to judge. And so we see that here in this passage. Here's Samuel. He's empowered by, the, Saul is empowered by his anger, so he can do that. Here's another one you can think of where God empowered a man. And who is this? Samson. Samson didn't seem like he could do anything other than follow the latest woman that walked by him. And of course, you know all his story, how things ended up bad for him, and he was blinded and that stuff. And he prayed, Lord, would you just give me the power through your spirit to do one last thing? And you know the story that happens. He comes around there and he grabs the two pieces of the thing and he takes them and he pulls it down. And so in other words, it's like saying, there's an example of the Holy Spirit enabling a person not to make them feel good, but to destroy a group of pagan people who are opposed to God's people. And so that's an important thing. Now jump over, if you will. We're going to skip the next chapter, this whole section. The next chapter is a review, a lot of it. And so we're going to go through just very, very quickly. What you see in this passage is dealing with this issue of what is going to God going to do with his people. We have Samuel's last speech. This is the last time we hear of him. We also have Samuel speaking about his integrity. Did I ever take anything from you? No, you did not. He said, do you remember back how God cared for you? Yes, we did. And then it goes on to say, I want to warn you, if you turn away from the Lord, there will be judgment. And he also gives a promise, if you will repent and come back to God, 
you will see how gracious the Lord can be. We're jumping over that chapter and we're coming to this one. Because right here is one of the odd, odd things in the Old Testament. And I don't have an explanation for it, but I'll make one up on the way, okay? Saul was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned 42 years over Israel. Now that, I'm using the Holman Christian Standard Bible. You may be using something else. It may be slightly different. And here's the reason why. The Masoretic text, that is the text that we use for our Bible, for our Old Testament, literally says this. Saul was blank years old when he became king and he reigned blank years over Israel. And people go, oy vey, what are you talking about? And so what you see in some of the other versions, Coptic and other ones like that, they often put in 30 or 40. The reality is we don't know. It's about 30 or 40. And obviously, if you look at the years that he worked, it was something like that. But it's really weird. Now, here's one thing I think that is positive. Somehow, whoever the scribe was that was writing this, who left out the words, was at least decent enough to say, I don't know, so I'm going to leave it blank, rather than just make it up, because they felt the scripture was so important. Now, notice this next one. What happened is, is now what happened, Saul said, he chose 3,000 men from Israel from himself. 2,000 were with Saul at Michmash, and in Bethel's hill country, and 1,000 were with, now notice this guy here, Jonathan, one of the great figures of the Old Testament, a great man. First time we've heard from him in the Bible. He was with Jonathan, went to Gibeah and Benjamin. He sent the rest of the troops away, each in his own tent. Now notice this. Jonathan attacked the Philistine garrison that was in Geba. And so the, the Philistines heard about it. In other words, it seems to be that it was, it was Jonathan who launched this whole deal. He attacked. They said, okay, you want to fight? We'd be more than ready to take you on right now. And so here's what happens. It says, Saul blew the ram's horn throughout the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. And all of Israel heard the news. Saul's attacked the Philistine garrison. And Israel is now repulsive to the Philistines. In other words, trouble is coming. Big time trouble from their perennial enemies, the Philistines. Then the troops were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines also gathered to fight against Israel. Now notice this, 3,000 chariots. What were the number of the Israelite chariots? The big zero. Now think about this. Put it in our context. Uh, one of the men that were here last week, a friend of mine, uh, Dave. Uh, Dave was in uh, Vietnam driving a tank, in a tank group. And so here he was. He had a tank that he'd do. And of course, they're powerful machines. So if you think about it, these kind of things, these chariots, were sort of like the ancient tanks. And only they had it. So if you're getting the picture here, the point is, Israel doesn't have the technology that the Philistines do. So they're already at a lower point in terms of ability. They said, we've got 6,000, they've got 6,000 horsemen and their troops as numerous as the sand on the seashore. That's a lot, a lot of troops. They went up at camp at Michmash, east of Beth Aven. And if you notice here, you can see it right there. It's on the west side of the Jordan River, not far from where they're going. Now notice if you would, I think you'll notice if you would, there you will. Verse 6, the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble because the troops were in a difficult situation. That's an understatement. They hid in caves, thickets, among rocks, and in holes and cisterns. In other words, man, let's get out of here. 
They've got all the technology. They've, we've got nothing. And they are the ones that they're going to slaughter us like nothing. And so you see what's happening here. Things are getting worse. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. In other words, man, I'm going east. I'm getting out of here as fast as I can because there's suffering coming. Saul, however, was still at Gilgal. That's the place where they made him officially king. All his troops were gripped with fear. This is not a good situation when your troops are leaving and the other ones are afraid. And so here is a young king who realizes he is in deep trouble. He waited seven days for the appointed time that Samuel had set. He said, wait seven days. Don't do anything till I get there because I'm telling you, I'm going to bring a sacrifice, but it's going to be seven days. But Samuel didn't come to Gilgal. In other words, he's late. His troops are leaving. The Philistines are much more powerful than they are. It looks like they have no chance. His troops were deserting him. So Saul said, well, bring me the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings. Now, it's one of those things you wish if you were there going, don't do it. Saul, bad idea, not good idea. You look at the book of Exodus, you look at uh, Numbers, you look at these books of the Bible, they're full of things that are saying only the priest can do this. Only the priest can cut this animal up. They have to do it a certain way. It has to be burned a certain way. You have to follow this. You have to be in the priestly line of Levi before you can do any of this. And Saul says, I, I'm desperate. I've got to do something. And so I'll do the sacrifices. And I just wish there was some guy there going, no, no, bad idea. But he's desperate. And he's not willing to see what the Lord might be able to do. Just as they finished an offering, another one is, isn't that an amazing coincidence? Just as they finished offering the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. So Saul went out to greet him, and Samuel said, what have you done? Saul answered, well, well uh, you know, I saw the troops were deserting me, and, and you didn't come within the appointed days, and, uh, you know, the Philistines are gathering at Michmash, and, uh, you know, I, I, I thought that the Philistines now were going to descend upon me at Gilgal, and I really haven't sought the Lord's favor. I really need to wait on that, and, and, and you haven't come, so I finally decided, uh, I, you know, I just forced myself to do it. That's a weak man's way of saying, I chose not to obey God. You know, I didn't really want to do it, but you know, I forced myself because we're losing. We're already in a bad situation, and now it's worse. And 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 you and and Samuel's saying, "Do you understand how significant this is? Yes, you're in trouble. Yes, you have the odds of you winning are just almost negligent. It's not going to happen unless the God of Israel." who has said that he will promise to fight your battles. He is there. You don't have to be afraid. And yet you are willing to disobey me when the Lord told me to tell you, hang in there. I know that you're losing people every day, but wait till you see what God can do. Samuel said to Saul, now notice this, you've been foolish. You have not kept the command which the Lord your God gave you. It was that, and by the way, let me stop right there. He said, you have not done it. He said, you have not kept the command that I had. And it said, notice this. Here's the thing that's so sad for Saul. It was at this time, this is Saul, Samuel speaking to Saul. It was at this time that the Lord would have permanently established your reign over Israel. Stop for a moment and think about that. In the ancient world, what every king wanted was a son. 
Sorry, ladies, but he wanted a son. A son to be the one that follows after him. I want a son. I want a grandson. I want a line of kings who follow from me. And Samuel saying to him, you know what? I know that'd be nice, wouldn't it? It's not going to happen for you. You're not willing to obey when the chips are down. And it isn't going to happen. The Lord would have permanently established your reign over Israel. But now your reign will not endure. Now notice this. The Lord has found a man loyal to him. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people. Really? Yeah. Who is he? Well, there's a shepherd boy in a little town, a little area called Bethlehem. And he's watching over his father's sheep. And he's got a bunch of older brothers. And he doesn't know anything about this, but that young guy is going to be the one who's going to be the ruler over God's people. It's talking about David. Three chapters from now, we'll be seeing David anointed by Saul, I mean by Samuel. And so here's a great example, maybe a terrible example, of a person that was unwilling to be faithful to what God told him to do. The Lord has appointed him, that man, that young man, who is ruler over his people, because you have not done what the Lord commanded. Saul is a good case of partial obedience. And if we're honest, there's a lot of us at times that have done that. Well, I did part of what I think the Lord wanted me to do. Or I should have done more, but maybe I didn't. Yet the Lord said, I'm looking for a man, I'm looking for a woman who will be absolutely committed to what I asked them to do. And it is really sad to see what happened here to Saul. He actually had a pretty long reign. If you saw it, it was either 30 or 40 years. But he would never have a son. Jonathan's course is going to die. And he's not going to have a line of kings that he always wanted because of his unwillingness to fully do what God asked him to do. Here's an example of that. Going down the road, we're not anywhere near that yet. But David is about ready to die. And he knows that it's near the end. And he gets his son Solomon there and says, Listen, I want to tell you, son, I know you're a smart guy and I know you're going to build this temple and it's going to be beautiful, and, but I want you to listen to me. He said, I want you to be strong and brave and keep your obligation to the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, command, judgments, and testimonies. In other words, keep the law that God gave us. If you'll just do that, God will promise you he'll, he'll give you a great opportunity to serve him. You can have line after line of men that are going to follow you, be sons, grandsons, great-great-grandsons, if you'll only do it. And Solomon had everything he could have wanted. We think of him as the smartest guy on the block. And yet, what does he do? He starts hanging around with women from other cultures who have nothing to do with the Lord Yahweh. And he starts building places for them to worship. And he starts ha having new women that he comes to be his wives and concubines. And what happens? They all start having an impact on the life of the people. And the spiritual life of God's people starts dropping. And it's hard to imagine. If Solomon is like the smartest guy around, why is he not smart enough to obey God? Well, that's a good question. Why am I not smart enough to obey God like that? Why are you not smart enough to realize 
that following God's will and his way is the way of life and peace. Notice these two quicks real quick, if you would. Partial, oh, partial obedience is disobedience. We want to say, well, I did part of it. God's not asking for part of it. He's asking for all of what he's asked you to do. Second one, with this we'll close. The cost of obedience is nothing compared to the cost of disobedience. Ouch. It's so much easier to be obedient immediately than to experience the suffering that comes from failing to follow God. Our Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you so much for the scriptures that remind us that even though this may be nearly 3,000 years ago, it's still speaking to us today. Father, we pray that when you give us a command, when you tell us what to do, that it would be, yes, Lord, to do it joyfully, graciously, and to want to serve you well. Father, we pray that as we continue in our worship and as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table, we would ask that you would help us to be able to remember. As we talked about our Ebenezer, the, the, the place where we remember what you've done for us, remind us that every time we come to this table, we come to the blood and the, and the body, the, the bread and the wine, we're remembering what you have done, what you're doing, and you're yet going to do for us. We ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.